Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question, while providing real solutions from a biblical world and life view. Your co-hosts are Pastor Charles Roberts and Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor. Hello and welcome to another Out of the Question podcast. Today is Thursday, May 31st. I'm Charles Roberts. And I'm Andrea Schwartz. Today's question has to do with the recent statistics showing that there is an incredibly high rate of divorce among baby boomers. That's the generation of folks who were born roughly in the late, from the late 1940s to the early 1960s. And the statistics show that there is an escalating rate of divorce among people in that category. But the question behind that question about why there are so many in this age group to whom this is happening is what does the Bible have to say about the foundations of marriage, and are there, in fact, conditions or reasons for divorce and remarriage? Andrea, what do you think? Well, it's, it's interesting because when you think of the baby boom generation of which you and I are a part, and we know people who fit the demographic of what we're talking about and are either in the process of getting divorced or have been divorced, that the baby boom generation was the first generation heavily influenced by television and media coming into your home from the time they were young. So if you look at the baby boomers, let's say that starts right after the war's end, so by the time television comes into its own, a lot of these folks are 8, 9, or 10. And then, of course, people born in the late 40s, early 50s don't even remember a time when there isn't television. And we've talked other places, other times, about how what people see and what's presented to them often becomes acceptable because they've seen it. And so I'm wondering how much of the incidence of divorce, and and we'd have to say even within Christian circles, has to do with the fact that the stigma came off. I don't think there's any reason to believe that people are any worse or any better in the latter part of the 20th century than they were for all the centuries before. But something changed that made divorce something that was acceptable where previously it had had a stigma attached to it. Well, there was an article published, well, I think it probably was published in several different places. The one that I saw and the one that you also, I think, have read was published on a website called Market Watch, and it was published on May 19th, just um, a week or so ago, about this issue, about why baby boomers are divorcing at a stunning rate. And it's a term, the term used to describe it is gray divorce, adults 50 years and older for whom the divorce rate has roughly doubled since the 1990s. And the statistics indicate that the uh, divorce rate in the millennial group and the Generation Xers, I guess, are the ones just below our our baby boom generation, uh, uh, do not match that. So this is a a definite identifiable phenomenon by the uh, Pew Research Center. And some of the things in the article, which is not written from a, a biblical or Christian perspective per se, that they have identified to address the point that you're raising, there have been multiple factors that have contributed to the persistence of and the rise of divorce among this age group, not least of which have been uh, changing understandings on the part of the individuals who go into a marriage and what their expectations are. I think this has been 
whether the contribution of television, the decline of a biblically-based law understanding about the relationship between man and woman, husband and wife in the marital bond, these things have contributed to the decline of an understanding about what exactly am I doing when I've asked this woman or uh, this man has asked me to marry, and what am I doing going into this relationship? How have I been prepared for the role of wife or husband? And it's just here where some of this has had a, a tremendous impact, and the, the breakdown is coming later in life where these folks, uh, they've paid for their children's college education. They, they are empty nesters to some extent, and now they are left with the situation of, well, now it's, it's my turn. You know, there's an attitude of self-centeredness, the, the me generation, which is a very much part of this uh, same thing that we're, we're talking about. And there's one thing I should comment on, the fact that Generation Xers or Millennials, whatever you want to call them, have a lesser rate of divorce could also mean that they didn't bother to get married. And yes. so there was a lot of cohabitation going on. And so they're not going to enter into the divorce statistics because they never entered into the marriage statistics. But that said, you've really hit upon something that I certainly have observed. And that is couples marry. In many cases, at least among people I know, they weren't believers when they married. So their reasons for marriage probably had a lot of cultural influence. So they would have identified themselves as Christian. Many of them married within a church. You could see the pictures and the, the white gown and, and all the attendants and the minister, etc. But they didn't know why they were doing what they were doing. So it goes back to the idea of the biblical view of marriage is not the same as a humanistic secular view of marriage. And since a lot of these folks entered in with a humanistic view, many of them ended up going to church because they thought that was a good idea for their children when they were growing up. But because the relationship of husband and wife didn't grow in a biblical sense and wasn't cultivated, by the time their children were up and gone, these people had very little in common with each other because they didn't look at their marriage as a calling. They may have just looked at it as a convenience where they were able to satisfy sexual urges or the, the desire to have a family or things like that. You know, in my role as a pastor, I've had occasion to counsel with all kinds of couples who are seeking to get married. Thankfully, I've not had to counsel with many who were thinking about divorcing, although I have had to deal with that on a few occasions. But in the course of my 25-plus years in pastoral ministry, I've had a lot of conversations with people about this topic, and I well remember a conversation I had with a person who was older than you or I. This happened to be a woman who told me that the reason she married was because she had had sex with her boyfriend at the time, and she was convinced that nobody else would marry her, and therefore she felt obligated to marry him. It was not a case of, I'm, I think I'm pregnant, so therefore I better get married or anything like that. Now, this is from a generation of people in the early 1950s who are young adults at that time, where there was uh, quite a bit of still uh, a stigma attached to uh, sexual relations outside the marriage bond, cohabiting pregnancy outside of marriage, things that are just absolutely commonplace today, but there was quite a stigma about it. So, you know, that would be something interesting to talk about, about the situation like that, where a woman in particular would feel 
obligated to marry a man just because she had committed the sin of fornication. Um, well, think about it, Charles. Think about it. You could say, well, it was the cultural norms. It was the fact that we had an ostensibly Christian culture in the U.S. But if you think about it, it's also the fact that deep down inside, all of us know right and wrong because that's been imprinted on us. So in a very real sense, her concern was founded. Biblically speaking, a man who's approaching marriage with a woman who's a virgin, as opposed to a woman who's not a virgin, the dowry system, which is a subject in and of itself, reflected the importance of a virgin as opposed to someone who was not. Now, that may seem awfully arbitrary, but if you remember, which I know you do, that marriage is a picture of Christ's relationship with his church. So the parallels between the purity of the church and the necessity not to be adulterated or be fornicators with other religious beliefs, other gods, other priorities other than gods is very much embodied in the whole concept and the institution of marriage. So that woman's concern was founded on the fact that it was hitting truth. In, in a lot of cases, that the, th there is not a clearer understanding of what the biblical standards are, both in terms of how men and women of marriageable age are to be relating to each other prior to having any kind of relationship that even remotely smacks of romance, and then the whole concept of what does Scripture teach us about what it means to get married and what is a man and woman attempting to do when they enter into that bond. Let me just share something with you that Dr. Rushduni wrote in a resource that I'll recommend a little bit later. He mentions the fact that, quoting Genesis, then uh, shall a man leave and cleave, leave his mother and his father and cleave unto his wife. He says, with responsibility, a man shall leave his father and mother and not before when he is responsible. Then he can be freed. Then he can cleave to his wife and create a new unit of society, the family. And the family is the basic unit of society. But he goes on to mention the fact that that is the paradigm, but in our culture, the basic unit of society is not the family, it's the individual. And so therefore, a, a different paradigm, a different foundation has been given to most people through these various conduits of the culture. And this is one of the things the article mentions is feeding the gray divorce phenomenon, is that, look, I've married, I've raised my children, this is about me now. It's my turn. It's my time. It's time for my individual fulfillment. And sure enough, there's Oprah Winfrey and all of the self-help, feel-good type of information that's shoveled out to people to feed that. And, uh, you know, whether it's called a midlife crisis or, or something else, uh, we have people pursuing things because they think that their individual needs and their individual success is the priority. And they have really no foundational understanding about the centrality of the family. And so without a good foundation, you can't have a good structure. And so a lot of the divorce that we're seeing now in this age group, we could say, to use an expression, the chickens are coming home to roost. The seeds were sown when you include public education as well as the media and starting in the 1960s for sure, having the assault on any biblical roots or any biblical teaching existing in the schools. You've basically had people, young people grow up with a sense of me, and it's about me, and how can I be fulfilled, 
And that's why we encourage people that everybody's got to go to college so you can get a good job because careers are the central part of fulfillment and success that we haven't cultivated the idea that you destroy the family, you will ultimately destroy society, the society that you actually like or think you like. And so as you have this vacuum, apparently, what's there to fill it? Well, a statist mindset really thrives on individualistic concerns and priorities because if you tell the individual, oh, yes, what you need and want is important, we'll pull you away from your family. Of course, we're going to replace your family, but you don't know that. And that's exactly the point that Rush Dooney makes um, in this same article, is that when the, uh, when the individual becomes the unit of society, when that becomes the foundation, well, then the individual is very quickly lost or absorbed into the state. And it's no coincidence, it's no accident that we have seen the rise of central state authority uh, over institutions like marriage and giving us ideas and concepts through, like you mentioned, public education about what marriage is supposed to be, what it's supposed to look like, going all the way back to TV programs like Peyton Place and uh, things from back in the, the 50s and early 60s where Free love and, and easy divorce were introduced ever so slightly, but becoming more and more common in the entertainment industry and then in society to where this becomes the, the, the order of the day. And it's harder and harder for a biblical concept of marriage to be enforced to where now in most states, there's the phenomenon of so-called no-fault divorce where nobody has to have any particular reason now, there may be in some states that there can be, say, for example, somebody could sue for divorce because of adultery. But in many states, if a man leaves his wife or a wife leaves her husband and they live apart for a year, then they can sue for divorce. No, no, no other ground. Then they've not been together for a year. And so you have this sort of question that comes up. Why do people bother to get married at all? Because is it just because we have this great big wedding industry and everybody wants to have the gala where they feel like queen for a day or king for a day? Because I wonder with all the money that's spent on weddings and all the paraphernalia that goes along with it, what do they do with the videos? What do they do with the scrapbooks when all is said and done and they decide that they're going to terminate their marriage? In other words, what was that? What was all that stuff for in the first place? And I've taken to, because I see this now in some weddings that I've attended where the people have divorced, it's like, wait a minute, you invited me to be a witness at your wedding. You received lots of gifts and you received lots of attention. I think you should contact me before you decide to end it because I was part of the witnesses to it and you wanted me to witness your marriage and your covenant. And now you're breaking the covenant. You see, so much of it has lost its real meaning. Well, you couple that with the fact that in churches and, and religious groups generally, but in Christian churches and circles in particular, divorce has never been something that's been considered a positive thing or a good thing. And now there are some churches where couples actually celebrate their divorce like they might celebrate a uh, marriage renewal or something like that. So the proper stigma that had been attached to a failed marriage is simply not there. Now, having said that, let's also say that Scripture recognizes that there are legitimate grounds for divorce. In Matthew 19.9, Jesus mentions one in particular, and because the Bible goes into this 
in, um, uh, in Matthew and Mark and, of course, in the writings of Paul, many of the historic creedal statements of the church have recognized this fact, and the one that I'm most familiar with and the one to which I am committed, the Westminster Confession of Faith in um, the chapter on marriage and divorce, which is chapter 24, has this to say about the conditions of divorce and remarriage. It says, adultery or fornication committed after the contract of marriage or being detected before marriage gives just occasion to the innocent party to dissolve the contract. If the adultery is committed after the marriage, it's lawful for the innocent party to sue out for a divorce and after the divorce to marry another as if the offending party were dead. Now, what's interesting about that statement is that it recognizes that death is a very important part of the ending of a covenant. And the way I read that is that it recognizes that the act of adultery in particular can effectively kill a marriage. Having said that, though, it doesn't have to. And I think this is another issue that is a part of this larger discussion, is whether it's something so devastating as adultery committed uh, after a marriage or some other terribly difficult problem, the, the question becomes, is the innocent party able to forgive or obligated to forgive that person? So it goes back to a couple of things. One, if we're going to look at capital offenses in Scripture, they include things like murder, rape, kidnapping, incorrigibility, and adultery. And so if, in fact, you have a biblically ordered society and a person is found guilty of adultery, the Bible talks about a death penalty because all the death penalty offenses are to purge the evil from among you. That said, God talks about Israel having been his bride, his wife, Israel having committed adultery, and yet Christ came and took his bride. So we would have to say that there is no sin that goes beyond the forgiveness of God. If a person is truly repentant, hates his sin, turns from it, and walks in obedience, that's the prescription of God being faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and that's why we confess them. The problem comes in, of course, when people decide it's a no big deal. Well, it is a big deal, and anybody who's ever been around people who've been divorced know how much it goes beyond the man and the woman who decide to dissolve their marriage. If they're children and there's extended family, it throws a grenade into the whole thing. And I have heard people say, some, mostly it's wives, because that's who I talk with, who say, he's impossible. He drinks too much. Uh, he doesn't listen to what I say. He's selfish. He won't talk. All of these are difficult situations. I've been married almost 43 years. Marriage is not an easy thing to live in. It's not the way the bliss that is often promoted in Hallmark movies or whatever. It takes hard work because you have two sinners in such close proximity to each other who pretty much need to forgive each other's trespasses regularly. So if we think, I'm going to just hang in with this marriage as long as it's easy, we should tell people who are about to get married. Let me tell you, it's not easy. The, the problem becomes, though, that when people face these challenges, when they get beyond the, uh, the mythological hallmark, as you referred to, uh, image of marriage, and they start dealing with real, the real world, and there is a tendency on the part, especially among 
non-Christians, but even unfortunately among some people who consider themselves Christians, the easy way out, quick divorce, or even not getting married at all. I mean, I think that's the flip side of this. Uh, The article mentioned the fact that uh, in some cases, and perhaps a lot of cases among the uh, gray divorces, the baby boom divorces, there was a prior marriage that didn't work out. And the statistics show that the second marriage failure rate is fairly high. And so this has led many people to decide that, okay, well, why get married? Why even go through that? Whether they know anything about the challenges that you mentioned or not, it is a rare thing to find a couple getting married today who were not, who have not already been living together. That is a fact. I'm willing to allow that the, the TV networks gin up some of this, but I don't think they have to go too far to do it. If you happen to see any of these programs that are like there's one about, uh, you know, women buying wedding dresses. I don't want to call any of the names of the shows, but and almost without exception, you, you get the idea. If not, it's not clearly said, you know, my fiance and I are living together or, you know, it, it's very clear that that's the case. So, yeah, the whole question about oh, why, why get married, but why are you doing this? But then after the marriage and the challenges and the problems show up, well, I didn't sign up for this, so I'm getting out right now. And the problem is this creates chaos in society and in culture. And as Dr. Rustuni so clearly indicated in many of his writings about the foundation of the family, and in, in that he is keying off the, uh, the stellar work of Dr. Carl Zimmerman, uh, a Harvard scholar who wrote a massive study on the centrality of the family. Unfortunately, the only version of that book is called Family and Civilization, I believe is the name of it. You can still buy the book, but it's been highly edited. Some older libraries, you can find the first edition that has not been edited. It simply points out that in any culture, the, the family has been the foundation. And uh, this is something that's been built into the fabric of the created order that God gave us. Even in ancient pagan Rome, before its ultimate decline and fall, which I'll go on and say, Part of that, at least, was because of the breakdown of the family. The Roman society placed it a tremendous emphasis on the importance and centrality of the family as, as a unit. But we find, even in the case of the original creation, the first husband and wife had problems right from the start. <laughs> you know? Right. Let's grant the fact that a lot of people got married, and they didn't know what marriage really was supposed to be. If the church is going to do its function, that's what should be concentrated on mostly in terms of how to make families and marital couples, how to make them glorify God with their dominion work. Dominion happens in the family. It doesn't happen in the state, and it doesn't even really happen in the church apart from the individual groups that make up the church. And so the family is important in helping keep marriages together. That's why before two people marry, Their families should know each other. Their families should have things in common. They should have the support and agreement that we're for this union. And when difficulties happen, which they can and will in many different forms, whether somebody's uh, health changes, whether a child is born with severe illness or disability, these are all challenges that the marriage will face. Well, if we look at marriage as where I'm supposed to have no problems, as opposed to marriage is that state in which God's going to refine me to make me more acceptable to Christ and more Christ-like, then instead of saying, oh, my marriage has problems, the real view should be 
how do we solve these problems from a biblical perspective? And I think a lack of a biblical perspective has what's has contributed to much of the overemphasis, the stress on individual rights, individual satisfaction. And it's at this point that I, in particular, part company with many of my good anarcho-capitalist libertarian friends. I consider myself a Christian libertarian in that sense. But I think the problem with a lot of libertarianism is that it places this central focus on the individual, individual rights, individual freedom, as if we are all sort of separate little atoms bouncing around in the universe. But the fact is, there's no such thing as a victimless crime. And if somebody is involved in some activity as an individual and thinking, and in the case we're talking about a spouse, say, who is cheating on the spouse, getting involved in an adulterous relationship, you're harming much more than just yourself and your spouse. I referred to this on a previous broadcast, but it's pertinent to bring it up here, where Dr. R.C. Sproul in one of his lectures was talking about the fact that in in his early days of his ministry, he was having a counseling session with a husband and wife and, um, One of the two had been involved in an affair, so it was sort of a triangle situation, as it used to be called. And the the person involved said, look, this is only between me and my lover and my spouse. It's not involved anybody else. And Dr. Sproul said, what that person didn't know was that my appointment book as pastor of this church was booked up for two weeks solid. Of all the relatives, the cousins, the aunts, the uncles, the friends, the neighbors who had been impacted by the breakdown of this one marriage, the effects of sin ripple right through a culture. And the problem is when the individual becomes the foundation, the the stress, the emphasis point of everything, well, the family changes to the state, the centrality of the community. And so the standard changes, and therefore you must not do anything to violate the solidity and the stability of the state as the state defines it. So we see today the things that people get all exercised about, they tend to be things that our godless humanistic culture have defined as boundaries that you must never cross, which, of course, those boundaries are the very things that Scripture militates against. So we find a society moves away from the foundation of the family that promotes divorce at at any stage or demeans the central importance of marriage and family to uh, some sort of sideshow, moving in a direction that is, is nightmarish that is 1984-ish, or Big Brother, Brave New World type of scenario. It's interesting that Orwell used the term Big Brother, because you see that was a family term. That's right, yes. So you can't get away from it. This is part of how God created us, and this is the fabric. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and they should be fruitful and multiply. That's the family. And if you've ever had close-up contact with a child, and I'm going to go so far as I'm not talking about just a little child, up until their teen years, who have to confront the fact that their mother who they love and their father who they love no longer want to be married to each other. And they'll sit down and they'll tell the kids, it has nothing to do with you, it has to do with us, and we'll still be friends. In fact, we can be better friends not being husband and wife than we can be being husband and wife. And it all sounds so good, but the children are injured. And you see it in them. You see that their sense of order, their sense of regularity, their sense of themselves, and it changes the way they view relationships. So I've seen young ladies who are really, really mad at their father for what he did. And yet within a very short period of time, 
they're acting more like him than they're acting like a faithful person and they go from boyfriend to boyfriend, lover to lover. Or those who are sure that the reason one of their parents committed adultery was because the other one didn't do his job and he did something wrong. And so it confuses people. And yet we basically say it's really better if we be true to ourselves than live out this lie. Well, that just assumes that dealing with difficult situations is not God's intent. You see, sin should bring about problems, but repentance brings about solutions. And if we just run from the problem because it's too difficult, we won't have any solutions. We'll just create more problems. Yes, and we're, we're saying it's not just an issue of we need a biblical foundation for the understanding of marriage and for the boundaries of what constitute reasons for divorce and remarriage. What we're saying is that family is unavoidable. Society or culture cannot get away from the concept of family. The question is, who defines what the family is? What is it that constitutes the nature of the family? So at at any given point, there's going to be a law or a voice of authority that will say, this is what a family is. This is what it means to be a fulfilled individual. Holy Scripture speaks volumes about the importance of being a fulfilled individual. The difference is, is that our modern culture, the, uh, the people who would tell us uh, the humanistic understanding of that, is very different than what Holy Scripture says. And Holy Scripture says that for most people, the Bible recognizes that there are some exceptions, but for the vast majority of the people created in this world, by Almighty God, marriage is what they are to be involved in with all of its problems. And just like family is unavoidable, whether it be the status version or the biblical version, so too sin is unavoidable. The state now defines what sin is according to its own standards. And if you violate those standards, you'll be reprimanded. And of course, Holy Scripture has done that all along. And it's interesting, too, that I think one of the most telling observations I ever heard Dr. Rush Dooney make was in that interview he did with uh, Bill Moyers. Moyers was rattling off, you know, the usual list of capital crimes that you alluded to earlier. And he asked Dr. Rush Dooney, well, what about treason? Is that punishable by capital, uh, by capital punishment? And Rush Dooney made a point that, you, you know, Moyers looked like he'd been hit in the face with a brick, that Scripture knows nothing about treason against the state. It's treason against the family. That is the foundation of the idea of treason in Scripture. And you can search every inch of the older covenant, and there's no idea that you can you know, somehow betray your country or betray uh, this state entity. It's the family that's betrayed, and that's the foundation of the concept of treason. And the whole purpose of God's law is to bring about a restoration and a reconciliation between God and man. And I think all Christians need to realize that it's our job, not the job of the marriage counselor, not the job of the pastor, but to be able to be available and helpful in helping couples restore what's either breaking or broken. Because it's not like anybody does better afterwards. Statistically speaking, divorced women do not do as well as married women. Men who are married tend to live longer than men who are not. And so Instead of expecting perfection in the other person, a biblical understanding of sin makes it very clear to you that you're not perfect either. 
don't expect in someone else something you're not willing to do. And I don't care how many notches a person has against him or her. The point is, are we going to be faithful to build or are we just going to give in to tearing down? And I think the, uh, one of the areas where churches, pastors, religious organizations have failed is not promoting the foundation of what marriage is all about and preparing uh, children and families, too, of course, are the first place where this failure has, has taken place. There's enough blame to go around. But, you know, we ought to be preparing young people, our children, to engage in dominion work and recognizing that the family is the vehicle by which that work takes place. Now, I don't want to get into a discussion about other religious groups, but there have been uh, some churches and some false churches and some marginal churches that have recognized this uh, to the shame of biblically orthodox churches. And the family is a very important part. Uh, And the family has been the vehicle by which many of these religions have spread. And I think that somehow God has maybe intended to use some of this to get our attention to say, hey, this is what my plan is for you. You know, you are the ones who are supposed to be doing this, not this particular group. And so when somebody says, you know, I I want out of this marriage because, well, she's not as pretty as she used to be. Or, uh, you know, he's gotten fat and ugly as we... That tells me that the person really had no proper grounding and understanding going into the marriage, whether it was 10 years ago or 50 years ago. So we've, we've got to do a better job of, of educating children and young people about what their responsibilities are in this world. And it's a battle. I mean, it is a massive cultural battle to have to do this because we are surrounded at every turn uh, by the swan song of our culture that would uh, want to lead our children away from this direction and say, no, 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 your, your job is to follow this status vision of the future. Forget that biblical stuff. That's just a bunch of nonsense. And too many Christians have bought into the idea that marriage is about sex. Oh, you're not supposed to have sex before marriage, so we better go get married so now we can have legitimate or legalized sex. Sex is a very integral part of marriage because sex is the way in which future generations come about. That's part of being fruitful and multiplying and replenishing the earth. So you take the byproduct which is the pleasure and the intimacy that goes along with a covenanted union between a man and a woman, you make that primary. And so a lot of people got together so that they could have sex. Now that they're together and sex is, you know, the, the benefits or the, the pleasures that come from it are variable based on health, based on attitude, based on children, all sorts of different things. And so when that component goes away, then there's an emptiness there because the whole thing was founded on an aspect of marriage, but not the essence of marriage. And this goes to the heart of um, one of the problems that we face in terms of the stress on the individual and the way that people have been brainwashed into thinking that their felt needs, their priorities, their happiness, all of this stuff is of the utmost importance. And if we look back across the ages and uh, millennia of human history, most people didn't get married because they wanted to have sex. Most people didn't get married because they wanted to feel fulfilled. He completes me. She completes me. All of this is modern nonsense type talk. The fact is most people who have been married 
across the vast stretches of human history. They were arranged marriages of some sort. Human family units have survived, for better or for worse, quite successfully. It's only when we get to modern times, especially in the humanistic, secularized cultures of the West, and particularly here in these United States, where there's been a concerted effort on the parts of various groups of people whose main goal is to destroy the biblical foundation uh, that existed, uh, such as it, as it was. It wasn't perfect. Uh, but there has been a concerted effort to do away with this and get people interested in the idea that my goal in life is to have as much free sexual activity as I can, smoke as much pot as I can, get in touch with my inner needs, make as much money, whatever, all the, whatever the agenda is, whatever the, the false dream that's being shoveled out to people. The sad part about it is, is that so many people crash and burn at the end of the rope of these things, and not enough Christians are around to give proper guidance when these things are done, because so many churches have abandoned the standard of God's law. They really have nothing to offer folks like this, and that's one reason these podcasts and the ministry of Chalcedon is so very important, is that we are seeking to continue the tradition of setting forth solid biblical alternatives, because the Bible speaks to every area of life. And a lot of people are astounded to realize that God's Word gives us firm, time-tested, and more importantly, absolutely true guidelines for what a good marriage, a fulfilled life really looks like. I think everything can be summed up here with the passage from Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain that build it. And so if you want a, a structure that will stand, that will stand the earthquakes of life, that will stand the torrential rains, then it has to be built on the foundation of Jesus Christ. And let me say this, because I know time is probably catching up with us and we're going to give some resources at the end. There may be people listening who say, yeah, I wish I knew the right way to do this from the beginning, but that's not where I am now. I'm in a situation where we've grown apart, or I became a believer and he's not a believer, or vice versa. Before you throw it away, before you decide there's no way for reconciliation, I really encourage you to talk to someone who will be straight with you and who will help you discover the biblical remedies for the awful situation you're experiencing. Because there is a way out, and when that way out is done to the glory of God, then you have a really good testimony that says, look, this is what it was. This is where I was. And by the application of God's law word to my life and the grace of the Holy Spirit on a couple that is heading in a direction that will end the marriage, that God can be glorified as the correct way is, is used to rebuild as opposed to tear down. Excellent. That is a, a, exactly what we need to put before people. And I would just like to stress that, you know, we have spoken very forthrightly in this discussion about marriage, uh, about divorce. Again, for anyone who may be listening who is struggling with these issues, there is help for you. There are solutions to your problems, and they are found in God's Word. And I would urge anyone who is in this situation, whether they're contemplating an action that may lead to the breakdown or destruction of their marriage, or maybe they're in a divorce situation or going through that, to reach out to a biblically-based counselor 
who can work with you and help you find God's proper solution to your problem. It won't be easy necessarily, but there is a solution and there are answers to your questions. Well, Andrea, we have hopefully plumbed the depths of this issue to some extent. Are there any resources you'd like to recommend before we wrap up here? Okay, I, I, there's always the danger that I'm going to recommend what you recommend. But well, that's all right. <laughs> so there's this little book that is available through Calcedon called Toward a Christian Marriage. Hey, I was going to recommend that. I told you you would. But that's all and, right. Uh, I have used that book extensively in some of my own writing, quoting from the authors. And actually, there's a number of different <laughs> authors of which Rush Dooney is one. It's a small book. It's a simple book, but I really encourage people to get it because whether or not you are in the midst of a difficult marriage or you're close to people who are, the more you can get a view of what should be, what a Christian marriage really is, you might be able to equip yourself to either help remedy your own situation or those of someone you love. I think the greatest thing that we can do is to say what God has joined together, let no man put asunder, the Bible says. And even if two people came together, obviously it was part of God's will that they marry because they did. That was part of the plan because nothing happens outside of it. So let's be those who are encouraging others to repair the breaches rather than dissolve what God has brought together. Yeah, the little book you mentioned, it's only about 45 pages, 50 pages. It's a little hardback book toward a Christian marriage, a Chalcedon study. It is one of the uh, one of the real gems that's available for purchase. You won't be surprised, I hope, to know that I am also prepared, even though you mentioned that one, to share a resource. This is Dr. Rush Dooney's chapter in his study on Deuteronomy called Divorce in the Family. Uh, it's on Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4. And the, the commentary itself is available from the Calcedon store at calcedon.edu. But you can also uh, log into the calcedon.edu website. And if you'll go to the uh, resources uh, tab and simply type in divorce in the family, it will take you to a page where you can actually listen to Dr. Rashtuni giving the lecture, the content in this commentary. And he lays it out very clearly. It's not lengthy. It's only about 25 or 30 minutes. But both that resource and the book are available to you from the Calcedon store. And we'd like to encourage all of our listeners to avail themselves of these resources and also to consider becoming a Calcedon underwriter. Calcedon could certainly use your support. The ministry of this work, this educational ministry, is of vital importance of continuing to put forth a an understanding of what it means to live in a truly biblically-based society. So we would encourage our listeners to prayerfully consider that. And I'd encourage people to share this podcast with other people. Don't worry if they're oriented to this particular view or not. If you know people who are in the midst of dealing with this issue, open the door. Let them see that there's another way to go here. And I'd also encourage anybody who would like to have additional resources or perspectives or even conversation with me or Charles to contact us via the out of the question podcast at gmail.com. And we'll do our best to help you connect with other resources, maybe locally or things in print that will help the process of restoration where God so wills it. Well, that about wraps it up for this out of the question podcast. So we look forward to uh, getting together next time. Until then, thank you, Andrea. Thank you, Charles. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. 
For more information on this and other topics, visit www.kingdomdrivenfamily.com.